This is Dave Broadback coming to you from my podcast studio at home. My podcast studio. It's my movie's my daughter's bedroom. Anyway, um, the lecture you're about to hear is from a course, uh, Psychology 3717, uh, for the winter term 2017. The course is called Memory, which might give away the, the you know, the, the content is mostly memory. Um, so, uh, hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Okay, so today we're going to talk about working memory. Uh, if you if you downloaded these slides before yesterday, there's new ones. To let you know, some of this was updated. So there's a couple of things that I think we can talk about by way of introduction. Um, you know how in the Atkinson Schiffer model, there's the sensory register, the short-term memory, and long-term memory. Well, the sensory register is meant to be this place where you have very brief, very small amounts of information, very brief period of time. So this guy Sperling started talking, uh, doing some research on this, and this is actually this experiment is what made me want to be a research psychologist. This is the thing, this changed my life. Before that, I was going to be a clinician and I was going to help people. That would have been a giant mistake. <laughs> so. Um, he wanted to look at what's called the icon, which is the visual sensory register. So he, show, he would show people a 9 or 12 character array, okay, just letters, for 50 milliseconds. That's a 20th of a second, right? Yeah. That's not long. And then he'd ask them to report the letters. What did you see? It show up and it disappears. Like it's that quick. It's finger snap quick. And people would read these out, and they would only be able to report about four or so of these items, which seems really small. Like that doesn't seem like it's a very high uh, capacity, does it? So what he decided to do instead is say, well, what if I got them to just tell me the maybe the top row or the middle row or the bottom row? In other words, I did what's called partial report. And in fact, that's what he did. He showed people 12 items again and had them either go the top row, the middle row, or the bottom row. How did he do that? Well, they heard a tone. A high-pitched tone meant the top row, a medium-pitched tone meant the middle row, and a lower-pitched tone meant the bottom row. And they would report it. And they could report about three or four items, no matter where they were. So the notion was, but if you made it any bigger, they could still only report about three or four items. So the idea then is probably that the capacity of this, of the, of, of the icon, the sensory register, is about nine items. Because what you're doing there is you're sort of randomly sampling from different rows. Make some sense? I'll show you a little uh, schematic of this in a sec. He was also able to show that it was completely based on just raw, unprocessed information, because he would show one array, then show another array with a different letter in front, and people couldn't report that middle one. So I'll show you what it looks like. So here's an, uh, an array, and then they hear a tone, and they give a response. So they show this for a 50th of a second, sorry, a 20th of a second, and then let's say it's the middle tone, and people will report J, B, W, they might be able to get to C about half the time, but half the time they didn't. They did this one, and this is the thing that blew me away. And made me go, oh, I think I'll do this. This is neat. Show a, an array, and then put another letter over top. Now, they don't report seeing an X for that, for that <coughs> first position. They don't report seeing a, a J, they report that they can't tell what it is because it's an X on top of a J. Isn't that neat? That's really cool. However, if you put that, just a, a, a dash like that underneath, no problem. They can still do it because it's not in the same place. It's not blocking the J. Isn't that cool? You don't think that's cool? I don't know what cool is. 
Questions about that? It's just neat. Yeah. Yeah, please. Um, so, just to be clear, they collapse the X shortly after? Right after, yeah. Okay. Bang, bang. The X only over top of the J. Yeah, but you can move around. Sure. Yeah. yeah, please. Um, so the one with the X actually covered the J, but not actually because it was just like a flash flash? Or yeah. Was it actually on top of the J? No, it wasn't actually on top okay. of the J. First you show the array, and, and then you show the X. the X. So then technically the visual system just interprets it as being on top of each other? Yeah. Oh. And then they, then they can't detect that it's a stim you can't name the stimulus, it's just a, it's a blob of it. Or you can mask it out with like a circle, and then they just can't see it at all, like a building circle. So it shows that sensor register is this place where unprocessed visual information lives for a very short period of time. Literally, we, we measure it in milliseconds. And like I said, that's... that's when I heard about that in a class on human memory in like 1985, I thought, oh, or 86 Ooh, that's cool. All right, questions? This just wasn't on, and I looked at all my slides for the whole course, this wasn't anywhere, and I thought, I gotta talk about this. It's my favorite thing. Okay. Now let's go move on to short-term memory itself. The, in the Atkinson-Schifrin model, we might want to call that primary memory. I think that's what William James would have called it. In the standard sort of two-store model, it's not really, I know Atkinson-Schifrin has center register. That's not really a memory store. It's almost a perceptual system. So the Brown-Peterson phenomenon is that you give people a list of words, or actually, I think in this case, it's constant vowel, constant trigrams. It's like Ebbinghaus. And after each one, you interfere. So you say count backwards from the number 301 by threes. Normally, if you do that, you get really nice performance. If you throw in this distractor task, you get, after 18 seconds, you're under less than 20% correct from a list. Pretty amazing. What they did is they prevented rehearsal. What you do, and I think you know this, if I was to give you a list and ask you to, and you knew you got a memory test coming up, like you're going to be required to repeat back to me, what will you do? You will say, if I give you the, the I don't know, what's it, the BAP, BAP, you're going to go BAP, BAP, BAP. You might not move your lips, but you'll think it in your mind's ear, if you want to say that. You'll do rehearsal. So they forgot, sorry, they prevented rehearsal by saying, out loud, count backwards from 301 by threes. See, if they say out loud too, you have to do it. You can't just say, okay, and then keep going. <laughs> so forgetting in short-term memory is very rapid without any processing. Without, and the processing I'm talking about here is rehearsal. Um, this supports the two-store model. That's the atkinson Schiffer type of model, the short-term and long-term. Like I said, I know there's a third box for century register, which we just talked a bit about. Questions so far? So here's, here's the actual data that I, uh, from Peterson and Peterson, husband and wife team, and then Brown did another experiment. That's why it's called the Brown-Peterson phenomenon. So this is, you get a list of uh, constant of L, constant of trigrams. Can you recall it after three seconds, six seconds? What's your probability of recall, or percentage of recall? Three, six, seven. Look, look at 18 seconds. Well below 20. It's almost, it's, I think it's 9%. It's amazing. So clearly, rehearsal is very important in short-term memory to keep things in short-term memory. And you know about this. You do this if you're just quickly 
before you put a phone number into your, into your phone, right? Before you put in your contacts, you say the number out loud to yourself a bunch of times. It's a strategy we learn without even having to be told to do it. We're kind of hooked up that way. So, what's the capacity of short-term memory? Well, I have on the list of readings for this week, one of them is Miller and the Magic Number 7, which sounds like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It isn't. So Miller discovers that there is a number that on average people can hold between seven, well between five and nine, but the average person is seven, items in short-term memory. This makes it abundantly clear why we have, for example, seven digit phone numbers. When the switchover was made, from phone numbers that had a prefix of words, like a, like a, like a used to be called like a, the exchange. Okay? And then you had four numbers afterwards, or five numbers. That's why there's still numbers on your letters on your telephone, and that just goes back to a different time. It's not a time I remember, but it was a time. And it usually had something to do with the neighborhood you were in. Okay, so they named it that way, so as a mnemonic, obviously. My mom told me the prefix, the exchange for her phone number in Montreal, she lived right on the shore of the St. Lawrence River, was Bywater. So her number was BY something, and then, which is kind of cool. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of cool in some way. That changeover starts to happen in the early 60s. This is when Miller has found this, and they, we go to all numbers, and it's seven. We have seven numbers in our phone numbers. Of course, we don't use seven slots to remember a phone number. Use two, maybe five, maybe maybe six even. Right? Because ten-digit dialing nowadays. But up here, it's all—they're all seven oh five. So who cares? But then the next one, that prefix, right, for the university is 949. If you've lived in Sault Ste. Marie for any period of time, you know that 949 is one of those things. You, can, you in fact, say it. If I was to tell you the phone number of the university, 705-949-2301, notice how I'm actually pausing between them. I wouldn't say 705-9... I'm not shattered. No one talks like that. 705 <laughs> Look at these three words written bigger than the rest. We, the people. <laughs> this wasn't written just for the Yangs, but for the Kongs as well. Um, I literally just did that so I could tell a friend of mine I did. Um, I don't want to sleep in. I'll be sending you an email tonight. Tell her recording, sir. Yeah. I know. Taylor has a question. Oh, oh, I was busy doing Shatter. Sorry, yes, Taylor. No, thank you. Very kind. So did Ebbinghaus, was he the one that of initially discovered yep. it, and then Miller took it. And yeah, I think that's that's a pretty fair statement. Ebbinghaus is the first person to say we had limited capacity, probably around seven. Miller does. Miller, it's funny, later on in his life, Miller said, you know, I didn't really mean it to take off like this. It's probably less than seven. And then as for the serial position effect, was that initially the name? Yeah. Again, it's the same thing. What happens is serial position. I don't know who you can say really. I, I think it's probably Binet. Uh, is the person who's given the most credit. But it was discovered by a lot of people reporting the same thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The magic number seven, Ebbinghaus definitely talked about that. The difference here is that Miller kind of popularizes it, but then eventually actually says, I didn't really think it would take off like that. Which is an interesting thing. Well, I didn't mean it. I just wrote it. So, we can hold seven items-ish in short-term memory, seven chunks, as I was getting at with the 705-949-2301. Because, in fact, I know the university phone number, that's only taking up three slots. 
right? Because 705 is one, 949 is one, 2301 is another slot. I got three slots only taken up. Whereas when you learn a new phone number in a new city where you don't know any of those things, right? It might take up the whole thing. In fact, it might be impossible. You've got a 10-digit phone number, right? So if you're somewhere new and you don't know that, I think one of them in London now is 226. Yeah. Because I think my brother's phone number is a 226. And it was funny because he was telling me this, his phone number, like, slow down, slow down, slow down. Now, had he actually said uh, 519, that's no problem. I got that one. When we get people to do free recall, we get this thing called the serial position effect that shows the importance of short-term versus long-term memories. What happens is, so I give you a list of, say, 10 items, and let's, we can just use words. No one uses constant, constant, constant trigrams anymore. Give you a list of words. And the first item gets the most rehearsal. And in fact, probably ends up being transferred from short-term to long-term memory, more evidence for a two-store model. So if the first one I give you is tree, you just go tree, 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 tree. And in fact, it eventually just gets kicked into long-term memory. And the last items is probably still in short-term memory. So let's say you get to the very end of 10 items, and the last one is uh, cup. And it's like, I tell you all these words, and the final one I say is cup. And then, then I say, OK, recall words, you go cup, because <laughs> it was just there. You know you're going to get that one right. The ones in the middle, not so good. The interesting thing is, this happens not just in lists of words, it happens in all kinds of things. When my wife, when I was in graduate school, uh, my wife worked at a proper job and then allowed me to go to graduate school. So thank you, Isabel. She just thanked in my dissertation. Um, but she worked at a market research company in Toronto. And she would sometimes come home and tell me, what, what, you know, how was work today? You know, the standard discussion. With me, how was school? I don't know. I collected some data and a bird pooped on me. <laughs> but with her, she told me, you know, always talk about the kind of stuff. They, and they'd run actual experiments. And one of the things they would test to see is how, how memorable an ad was. Makes sense. So they'd show uh, groups of subjects ads and then ask them details about the ads. That sounds sensible. And she said, our client, and to this day I don't even know who it was, she was pretty good about not disclosing things, was very happy because their ad was the best remembered one. I said, oh, really? So how do you do those experiments? And she said, well, we show them five ads, and then we ask them details about the same kind of details about each ad. How many people were in the ad? What's this? Well, you know, whatever, same kind of details. Oh, good. I said, so how do you do it? Do you show everybody, each person, the ads in a different order? And she said, no. I said, oh, so the one your client, was it the first one or the last one? I said, let's see, the middle one, the third one was the most poorly remembered, right? She said, how did you know? I said, I took intro psych. <laughs> and this isn't her fault. She was doing what her boss said. Of course, later on, they have a nice Christmas party. They always did, too, with free booze, which, you know. <laughs> and when you're a graduate student, free is good no matter what it is, and then it's booze, and you're definitely in. So I've had, like, nine drinks, and I got to the owner of the company. I said, you know, you need to consult. I will consult with you for $200 an hour and uh, design experiments. Because his thing with primacy recency effect. He said, well, I have a master's degree in psychology. I said, well, you weren't paying attention. I, I, was just such a, I don't know how, I, the fact that my wife is a wonderful person and she's bilingual really, I think, negated what a dick I was being to her boss. <laughs> so it all worked out OK. But even in larger items like that, uh, who was the first Prime Minister of Canada? Who is the Prime Minister right now? Yeah, yeah. Who was the Prime Minister? Who was the, so that's I think the 22nd maybe? Who's the 13th Prime Minister of Canada? Yeah. You don't know. Primacy and recency. So it happens with other lists of things too. You change the retention interval, you get rid of the recency effects. So you start, instead of, when I get to the word cup, and then I say, okay, now, 
go sit over there for a while. <laughs> in five minutes, we come back to the recency effect is gone. And in fact, it's not five minutes. If we do a Brown and Peterson thing, we could do it with about 15, 18 seconds, and that the recency effect will disappear. So it looks kind of like this. So if we've got, this is a standard primacy and recency effect. There's your primacy effect, first few items. There's your recency effect, last few items. Right? And again, if you haven't downloaded the new slides, you don't have this. I did this yesterday. I looked at what I had. If I get 10 slides, how the hell am I going to fill up a class? Um, then I can throw in, we're not going to do immediate recall. We're going to do delayed recalls. Delayed recall. If I do delayed recall, the recency effect goes away. I think that's all stuff you know. You should have seen it in the intro site. Right? Okay. So what happens, each item in a, in a, a serial position kind of thing, effect like this, each item interferes with the items before it and the items after it. Just think of this. If I get the first words tree, you start thinking tree, 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 tree. And then the next one is clock. You go tree, clock, tree, clock, tree, clock, tree, clock. And then I say, uh, the next word is desk, tree, clock, desk, tree, clock, desk, tree, clock. And the next word is light, tree, clock, desk, light, tree, clock, desk. The processing of each item, now we're going to we're gonna, we can do less rehearsal of each word, the more words I add. And eventually, when you get to five or six, you can't even rehearse five or six in your head. Tree clock, desk, light, chair. Tree clock, desk, light, chair. Uh, ceiling. Tree clock, desk, light. I'm just looking at things. <laughs> Tree clock, desk, light, chair, ceiling. Tree clock. And then another one already comes up. I'm only giving you a couple seconds between words. Luckily, tree's already in long-term memory, and clock's probably there too. And desk is probably so some of them have made it in. But we get to those middle few, and we got words. I'm throwing in window, and screen, and sign, and door. And then suddenly the tree clock this was working at the time. You have no you're screwed. So the later on ones become much more tough to process. Unless, of course, they're still available in short-term memory. And we get to the end and I say cup, and I go, okay, where the words go cup. Right? First one you do. And you got the last couple in there. Partway through rehearsing, in fact, you just stop. Typically what people do are so they think. I will stop rehearsing tree clock desk. I, I got those. And they start throwing in other ones, but now this, 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 this uh, interference comes along with it. The temperature has changed a plus and minus two degrees both ways since I've come in this room. I'm just letting you know. By the way, that's not just here. That's endemic of every university I've ever been in in my life. Everywhere you go, the bigger the room, the big lecture rooms, the temperature is just, it's a random walk model. It's just weird. Different. In three countries, two continents, I can tell you that's true. Now, the harder the task is, the more interference is going to be. So if I throw in not only are you going to have to remember the words, but we're going to do it not in your native language. We're going to do it in everybody here, at least everybody here is Canadian, took some French in school. We're doing French. And you can't be a Frank. Okay, so you can't play. So no bilingual people, just people that took French and got through just sweet to a. Paul, Jean, who regarding the teleo should we? No, Mama. <laughs> it's funny how some of you guys actually remember that actual dialogue. I used it when I was in grade two, and so did you. And that says something bad about our education system. Still, so the dog's name P two. Did everybody have? Yes. Yeah. Okay. See, I had that when I was a kid. What? No. Best books ever. 
Paul, Jean, that's the case. So you, you actually, yeah. 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 They need a stuffed animal pizza? That's funny. Anybody called it pizza? Not pizza, because somebody can pronounce things properly, and your French teacher couldn't actually speak French. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, we'll do it. You know, that's going to be hard. Because now I'm going to say words to you in a language that you kind of half understand. That gets hard. There's going to be more interference. Because you can't help but process things like, oh, what does that mean? So I give you a somewhat obscure French word, which for many of you is a word like rouge. Um, <laughs> and you start thinking, what's that? Oh, right, right. So you, you, because you don't think in, in, in the other language, and those of us who can speak a couple of languages, if you do it a bit efficiently, you can actually think in both languages. But most of you guys can't, right? So you just immediately translate it. You can't help it. Extra processing, more interference. You can have proactive interference. That's information from previous trials or previous items interfering with the next items. And then retroactive interference, which is inter interference of more recent items going back in time interfering with older items. I like to think of this as when I'm looking for my keys. Now, I'm pretty good about my keys because we have a thing to hang your keys on at night. And I have two places I put my wallet. Well, I'm supposed to have two places. One is on top of this hanging cupboard, and the only person in the house that can be is me. So I can see it from across the room, and I can't see very well. And the other place is it just sits beside the TV because I sat down on the floor to play a video game and took my wallet out of my back pocket. Then again, there's everywhere else in the house. <laughs> so a lot of times, I'll think in the morning, where's my wallet? And I think, oh, yeah, I know where it is. I left it on top of the cupboard, the place I'm supposed to leave it. And I go look, and I go, no, nah, that was yesterday. That's proactive interference. On the other hand, I can look back and say, where did I put my wallet a couple days ago because I, I seem to have lost a $5 bill. And $5 isn't that much, but hey, five bucks is five bucks. Right? Or maybe I've got something like I had a receipt and I would return something. This has actually happened to me. And I thought, oh, I must have taken it out of my wallet. I must have moved my wallet. When I took my wallet out a couple days ago, I'll go find it. Where, where did I put my wallet two days ago? Oh, I bet he put it right beside the bed. No, that was last night. Dang. That's retroactive interference. I used to have one of those wallets that was full of receipts. I don't really know. George Costanza wallet. You know, you're sitting around. Seinfeld reference that no one got. That's sad. Um, so how are we coding this? How is this rehearsal working? Well, it's got to be acoustic. It's got to be how it sounds, because in fact, think about it, you say the word to yourself. So it's got to be how the word sounds, at least logically. So Conrad, whoa, there's no word. Weird. So Conrad um, did this work on letter confusion. What Conrad did is he had people memorize, is it he? I think it's he. Yes. Memorize lists of letters. And people confuse B and V and D, and they don't confuse F and E. If they're confusing F and E, they obviously are, are thinking about how the words, or the letters look. If they're confusing V and B and D, they're confusing how they sound. And this doesn't matter, by the way, if they're presented to you visually, or so just one at a time, or like on a screen or something or they're presented orally. So this, the confusion is semantically dissimilar, but, and also this is the words now too. This isn't Conrad, this is other stuff. Confusion is with semantically dissimilar, but words that are acoustically similar, president and resident. One of the neat results is that even words are remembered that have fewer syllables, even if their meanings are more complicated.
That's cool. Purple is more easily remembered than aquamarine, even though those are exactly the same. Those are two, two uh, colors. So the meaning level is the same. Justice is more easily remembered than the word battleship. No, it's not good. <laughs> Aircraft carrier. You can say battleship, and so that's why I went with the same semantic thing. Aircraft carrier is really two words, just, you don't understand what I'm saying. Okay. See, now it's hot in here again. I, this is driving me crazy. There should be a bucket of ice or something up here. And hand warmers. <laughs> so depending upon the temperature. Okay. So what is rehearsal? It actually is just what it sounds like, silent repetition. How in the hell are we going to measure silent repetition? That's not going to be easy. Well, you know what you do? And this is what Rundus did, which I love that name, Rundus. Just the last name I've never heard before or since. It sounds like a shape. What's that? Well, that's our rundus. It's got four sides leaning over on the. <laughs> Give them a list of words, but have the subjects actually say whatever they wanted to allow and told them to. So rundus presents these words to people and says, Now, what I want you to do is actually talk out loud anything that comes to your mind as we're doing this. Remember, you're going to be tested on your memory for these things. Okay? And he recorded it. This is great. It's very clever, actually. The more, pe more people rehearsed, the more they recall. It's just it's a beautiful straight line. Makes sense, right? And the most recent item in the rehearsal list was the first one recalled. Just like you'd expect. So they had last words cup. There it is. That's actually, it's exceedingly clever. Because you might think to yourself, how in the hell am I going to measure rehearsal? Well, just make it explicit. Make the rehearsal happen out loud. Right? Questions so far? OK. Now, there's a bit of a but here about rehearsal. And about this whole short-term memory thing in general, and what causes the recency effect and the primacy effect. Recency and primacy, that should also be there, in short-term memory, it may just be that the word has become more discriminable. What do I mean by that? Well, you actually thought about the word. You thought about the word itself, and almost you can't help but think about its meaning. So when the first word is tree, you might start imagining trees. You, in fact, you almost can't help but do that. Even if you know it's just a list of words you're going to get tested on, and you start saying to yourself, tree, 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 you get an image of a tree. You think about trees. You might think of a specific tree. You can think of a tree in your yard, or just think of a kind of tree, I don't know. And the next word is a clock. And you might, in fact, think tree clock. And in fact, you might even get a clock in a tree. That might, might kind of go into your head. You might put them together into one item. It sounds like something would show up in like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. There's a tree clock. It's right beside the owl. Yeah. I remember the episode where Zed the owl, or sorry, X the owl, he had a Zed friend door, and they turned it into an X friend. TV history. But then later on, you got all these other words starting to get thrown in there. You can't. The rehearsal's getting hard. You start really paying attention. So maybe it's more discriminable from the other words, so it's more easily recalled. And because of this, what's called a collaborative process. I think that's 
part, I think it's for both of them. I think it's more rehearsal, and I think it's probably also the elaborate process and giving big things more discriminant. Those don't necessarily, one does not rule the other out. Right? Any questions? See, the nice thing about this, though, it's the, the two-store model, the world isn't that simple. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. But the nice thing is it actually explains a lot of data. Two-store model explains a lot of data. It helps understand data. And it helps us predict results. And in fact, a lot of models do that even though we know they're probably not true. Right? Do you remember learning in, in science class in like grade 10, grade 9, about orbits of electrons around a nucleus of, a, of an atom? Right? And they look like uh, planets going around. And you know that you found out if you took more science, you eventually found out that, that was wrong. The world isn't that simple. I remember when I was finally taught that they were actually quantum pl- probability clouds. And Because you don't really need to know that to do a lot of a lot of stuff in chemistry. The other model, the classical model, works really well for a lot of stuff. So we keep teaching it and keep talking about it because it helps us understand things. Same thing with the two-store model. The world isn't that simple, but it predicts a lot of stuff and it's helped us a lot in, in uh, explaining a lot of data. Questions? Oh, sorry. Can I is short-term memory and working memory kind of like the same? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've replaced the idea of short-term memory today with working memory. People kind of talk about short-term memory, short-term story more in the literature. They might in the general public, where they misunderstand the term, think that short-term memory is anything that happened in the last day and a half. No, So the idea of working memory <coughs> has replaced the notion of short-term memory or short-term store. So let's speak of this. Working memory has several components. This is the first thing where the world is more complicated than the Atkinson Shepherd model. The first component is a central executive, and there's the article by Baddeley I've got on my website I want you to look at. It's a very easy article to read. I think it's from American Psychologist. It's written at a, at a very nice level. So there's a central executive that's running everything. And there's a phonological loop and a visuospatial sketch pad. The phonological loop is really what we tend to think of when we the kind of thing it's what we probably used to call short-term memory. It's about sound of words, mostly. It's what allows you to carry on a conversation with somebody. It's what allows you to remember a phone number until you put it in your phone. That's the phonological loop. Visual spatial sketch pad is, how do I, well, it's just like it sounds, it's visual and spatial. How do I do things? How do I move around? Spatial problems, you know, mental rotation, things like that. How do I put together this IKEA furniture, which just doesn't have any words in the instructions? All it's got is a strange man holding an Allen key. <laughs> and it's called a flute, which could be either a bookshelf or a lamp, not sure which. A flute. Oh, is that the flute? The only, the only writing it has on it is like. <laughs> It's got the picture of the stick man with a question mark over his head and a phone number. <laughs> if you have any questions, call Sweden, where they don't speak English. <laughs> Actually, almost everybody in Sweden speaks English. Hey, I got a question. Why is it always with Allen keys? Um, so, despite changing from the Atkinson-Shepherd model to the working memory model. Um, we're, we still apply the uh, Miller's 
magic seven. Oh, I think that still belongs in phonological group. I think okay. I, I think we'd still say that. It's probably not quite seven. In fact, Miller later said it's probably closer to four. Like I said, Miller was like, you didn't really mean it. He's kind of kidding. Whoa. So working memory, then, remember I talked about different uh, metaphors for, for memory. And the idea of the workbench or the desktop. This is the case here. We're, we're working on stuff a lot more. It's a lot more sort of interactive. So we might get people to search through their own working memory to see if an item's there because we can get some characteristics of it. So we present people with a list of items. So let's say seven items. Let's go with seven. And it's seven letters, different letters. And then we have them, we have them search that to see if the word is there or not. Oh, sorry, the letter is there or not. So what Sternberg did is he had people do these working memory searches, and he had them just to say yes or no. Is the word there? Is the word not there? That's the question. I know this sounds kind of boring, but it's kind of cool like that icon research. It's fairly good. People could search serially or parallel. Serial, in other words, they search through each item one at a time. Or they could do it in parallel and search all of them at once. What people do is they search, what they actually do is they search each item, and they search exhaustively. They go all the way to the end of the seven items, even if it's the third item. We still go all the way to the seventh item. So if, the, if, the, if it's like uh, AXJ, L, Z, Q, R. The third one is J. And if I said, is J there? You go, you would think you'd stop right at J. You don't. It takes just as long to go all the way to the end for a, say a first or second item as does the sixth or seventh item. Really counterintuitive, isn't it? The results, these kind of experiments look kind of like this. So if we had parallel search, this is so along the this is how long it would take on the y-axis, and on the x-axis, this is how many how long it would take. If it was parallel, it would always take the same amount of time. Make sense? If it's serial exhaustive, it should look like this. The, the more items we have in short-term store the longer it should take. If we have one item, two items, three items, whatever. If it's serial and self-terminating, if the item is not there, we go all the way to the end, but if the item's there, we should just stop. Well, it's not parallel. And as much as serial self-terminating makes sense, It is. Do you like that effect? That's pretty good, eh? <laughs> Serial exhaustive search wins. So it's weird that we do this. It's the winner. <laughs> so it's weird that we do this. We do it. It's very strange that that would be the one in the end. The results always show up this way. Ever strange. And it's so counterintuitive. You would think we could stop. You know, is B there? Sure, let's see. You think you go, yes? Well, you know, you don't. You go all the way through. What? Yeah, but it's been replicated a bunch of times. It's just weird. So do you go all the way through for the parallel one, too? You would, well, at parallel, you do them all at once. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. 
So what's happened recently is that the working memory model now has a central executive phonological loop, visual spatial sketch pad, abstract semantic knowledge, facts about the world, capital Vietnam, Hanoi, stuff you just bring in, and procedural knowledge, how to do X, Y, or Z. See, now it's getting cold again. I can't. <sighs> it's cold enough that I'm, I'm now feeling a little uncomfortable. So I'm going to put my wedding back on. Wherein it will immediately become hot. I'm going to start with my hood up. Just going to go, <laughs> gonna go like that. I'm hit with the scene. I'm down the street. I'm the hippest professor in his 50s at this university. Can you No. <laughs> what I'm saying is that's really a pretty small slice of people. It's like being the fastest runner on my street. It really doesn't get you any endorsement deals. So we've now got this model that has central executive at the top, which is basically taking information and putting it places as, as things go. And you might think at first, well, this all sounds like we're just adding boxes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Except that we can dissociate these things. So it's the case, in fact, that you can do a spatial task while doing phonological ta task. Okay, so something with words. And in fact, you could have a brain, these are pretty rare, but you can get brain injuries where it screws with your visual spatial sketch pad and on your phonological loop. So the central executive is basically telling the rest of the components in this model, in this multiple component model of working memory, what to do. And temporal lobe damage can mess up general performance here, so it may be the case that the central executive has something to do with temporal lobe processing. But I wouldn't say that central executive necessarily leaves there or something. Don't get all excited that way. like that. There's a central executive and below it procedural knowledge, abstract semantic knowledge, biological loop, visual spatial sketch pattern. So it's much simpler than the old Atkinson-Schiffer model. Although I think it's safe to say the Atkinson-Schiffer model was just one part of it, the phonological loop. Like I said, the world's more complicated than you think it is. And then I can act and Schiffer thought it was. Now, the article that I had you read, I uh, hope you've read, from Badley, this is his version. Badley coins the term working memory. We can give him a special place. He's also very smart. So his, he's got this version here, the central executive, visual spatial sketch pad, phonological loop, and he's got what he calls the episodic buffer. That's where you're keeping autobiographical things, things that are happening to you right now. They're, they're personal.
And they then hook up with things that are not in working memory, with language, episodic long-term memory, and visual semantics, in other words, the meaning of words when you read them. And he says that we have fluid systems, and that's the working memory part there, and we have crystallized systems, that's the more long-term memory part, the shaded part. This is how badly views how all these different kinds of memory are interacting with each other. Later on in the article, he's got this, which has a central executive, the episodic buffer. No, now we see maybe the episodic buffer, I'm sorry, yeah, is above both the visual spatial sketch pad and the phonological loop. And then he's got some ideas here of what the different things are doing, what they're processing. Speech, lip reading, music, in case the smell is not sure. Touch, spatial things, visual things, color shape, etc. There's a couple of different views he's got here. And, you know, one of the things I like about the article is he mentions what potential problems are. And he talks about the central executive. And I think it's a huge, giant, throbbing problem. A big, yelling and screaming problem. Who controls the central executive? Wait, what? Why do you need that? They have sex machine out. Or Mackinac, actually. Latin, technically, the CHD. Huh. Now, he, he, by the way, freely says it's a homunculus. A homunculus is a little man living in your head doing things. And I think he thinks of it partly, if you read that article, as a way to explain things. He says he doesn't have a problem. I do. But maybe that, that may just be a philosophical thing on my part. Um, it seems to me that it's an extra level of complexity. How does the central executive know when to do what, know what goes where? executive function disorders. We can certainly talk about, oh, I don't know, uh, autism is a, is a great example of an executive function disorder. Right? My son's got autism. He's 15. He's a hulk of a man. Sweetest person you'd ever meet, too, but he's a, uh, just a giant and I think he's now suddenly stronger than me. It took some time. He can now carry me on his back. Okay, he's a big kid. And one of the things you see, I see him do, and I see autistic people do in general, and in fact, one of the diagnostic criteria is hand flapping. Right? Now, I've asked John why he does this. Because I want to know. It's a good question. And he says, because it feels good. Then the next thing I see, why does it feel good? It's because, I, because I'm autistic, which is a, he has this great answer. <laughs> Sometimes we'll be walking along, you know, we'll be going to, the, to, to a movie or something, and he'll just be walking along and go, uh, and I'll say, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm just being autistic. <laughs> oh, cool. Carry on, son. That's <laughs> good. And, uh, but the arm flapping thing, or stimming, as people call it. This may be the case that because of the problem with central executive, he doesn't know where his firm is set. I don't know if this is true. But he, like, I just know where my hands are. 
He doesn't. So by doing that, he can feel where his hands are. And it's not distracting, like, where'd my limbs go? John's high-functioning enough that, A, he realizes he has autism, and B, he realizes now and then he can just try to play the autism card to get out of things. <laughs> so when you're like, uh, can you, he's actually a really good guy, so I shouldn't, I'm trying to think of something, it's funny though, like he does all the things that a lot of people don't like doing, like he makes his own bed, he puts his clothes away, he empties a dishwasher? <laughs> I didn't do that until I was in my 30s. <laughs> but like sometimes I'll say, you know, oh yeah, I know. Uh, something from school, he wants to work on something from school. He doesn't want to work on something from school. Instead, he wants to watch YouTube videos. Or live stream himself playing video games. There's a lot of that. You can find him on Instagram, Broadback Jonathan. Um, follow him on Twitter at John Broadback. <laughs> But, uh, so he'll, and I'll say, please, not now, it's time to, you got to finish this, it's a little bit of math, just get it done and you can go, go live stream all you want. Don't, don't pull that autism shit with me, come on. And he just stops, like he's like, oh you got me, sorry. Can't blame the guy for trying. People always think that's kind of harsh, but I mean, I was I'm legally blind when I grew up with my dad, and say the same thing. David, I know you can't see, but your room is just full of shit right now. <laughs> so that's not an excuse. <laughs> and I think I took that okay. But yes, yeah, so I, I think a lot of times would say something like, maybe there's something to this. I just, I don't like there being a thing that's inside your head pushing buttons. <laughs> oh, well, that's spatial. Let's put that over here. This is the second time today I'm going to, I'm going to mention Tom Cruise and Minority Report. This goes here, this goes here, that goes there. Tom Cruise is also small enough to fit inside most of our heads. <laughs> so I think maybe it's Tom Cruise living in our brains. <laughs> so, so do you see my issues with it? Does anybody else have any other thoughts with that? It just seems weird to me. But then, there are, like I said, there are disorders, you know? So I don't know. This is an extra level of complexity you don't need. Sorry. Yes, please. Is this the most updated and current model that yes. you're using? Well, yeah. That, uh, I would say that that multiple components model I showed there with the four boxes yeah. is probably the standard thing people think. Badly in that article, that's from 2012, that article. And he's, you know, he's the one who coined the term working memory. Yeah. We can give him some credit there. I like his... I like the one with the fluid and crystallized and all uh, sort of things. I think that's probably the most sensible thing. Uh, the one you see most of is probably the one with the four boxes. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Good question. All right. Some conclusions. Hmm. Got through that quickly. Short term memory or working memory, I guess, is, is an active process. This isn't something that is passive at all. It's all about these processes, things like rehearsal, but other things too. Rehearsal is part of the study thing. Short-term memory or working memory, and again, I think the term working memory is probably better, seems to have different faculties. In other words, it has different things it can do, different things it's good at, different things it's specialized for. I still find the central executive a really, I don't like it at all. I just find that extra level of complexity is just, and it makes me uncomfortable. Like scientifically uncomfortable. I don't like extra stuff. I like parsimony, you know, simplest is the best, that kind of thing. And it just seems to me that it's 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 not entirely parsimonious. Yes, Dan. So there's actually like no evidence or anything saying that the central executive 
like there's I'm just I'm yeah that's Marcus, the thing like, I don't there's no no, it's not there's no evidence because we can have things where people can't process things properly because of a bump on the head or because of being born like that. But for people who are functioning normally? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they, they... Well, I will say this. We do know, for example, that you could be doing a mental rotation task and it not be affected by you labeling a map assuming you had some geographical knowledge. Okay? So we know those are separate. So semantic knowledge versus visual spatial sketchpad. We know you can carry on a conversation while driving a car. We know like there's a lot of things like that, that all involve working memory and we know there's different components. However, if I do have you do two spatial things at once, they both suffer. Wouldn't that just be like dividing attention though? Yeah. That's my thing. That's like that, that's my concern here, rather. That's that's why I have an issue with this whole concept. I, I just find it. I mean, I'm not as smart as badly. Probably. <laughs> not probably. Probably. I've met him before. He seems like a really nice, smart guy. Just seems a little bit. This just seems. I, I don't know. It always reminds me of. Like I said, I think I said the other day. It reminds me of. You know, when um, in Terminator and Schwarzenegger's always having readouts of things about people, right? Why does he need the readouts? I don't need readouts, right? I can look at someone and just go, woman in class, easy. I don't have to just go, dur, 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 I have to read it. There's a little guy in there doing stuff. It just happens, right? All right. Questions about that? Other questions? This does leave us a little. These are godless times, Mrs. Snell. I'll drink to that.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find, uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the, uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.